Welcome to episode 85 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I speak to Elizabeth Peake. Elizabeth currently serves as First Assistant Secretary, Human Development and Governance Division at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, prior to which she was Minister Counselor at Australia's Embassy in Beijing, China. She has previously held the role of Assistant Secretary, Southeast Asia Services and Investment Branch. Elizabeth has been instrumental in the Australian Government's recent development policy, Partnerships for Recovery, Australia's COVID-19 Development Response and Performance Framework, which outlines Australia's approach to tackling COVID-19 in our region, pivoting our development program to focus on the virus together with our partners. This interview is an exciting and rare opportunity to unpack the new policy with a senior representative of DFAT. During the episode, Elizabeth and I examine how aid funding will be repurposed and allocated to assist the Indo-Pacific's response and recovery to the COVID-19 pandemic, including where the $280 million allocated to the response will be spent and what programs have been cancelled or paused to make these funds available. We then discuss whether bilateral aid to Sri Lanka, Bangladesh and Nepal, among others, will continue in light of the decision to only make targeted investments outside of Southeast Asia. I ask Elizabeth whether the department and the government regret cutting funds to health programs by over 30% in recent years and why no additional funds have been allocated to the COVID-19 response given that $1 billion of additional funding was allocated to the region following the Indonesian tsunami in 2005. Finally, Elizabeth and I discussed labour mobility and tourism, including whether the government is doing enough to promote the Pacific travel bubble. We've included relevant links in the show notes, along with recent articles from the Dev Policy blog on promoting leadership in the Pacific. Before I go, the Development Policy Centre is running its annual fundraising appeal. The Centre provides critical support to this podcast and, of course, runs the Dev Policy blog and undertakes important research around aid and development. If you appreciate this podcast and the Dev Policy blog, please make a tax-deductible donation at devpolicy.org forward slash donate. Enjoy the episode. Elizabeth, thanks for being here. Pleasure, Rachel. Thanks for having me. So we're discussing the Partnerships for Recovery policy today. We know that as part of that policy, $280 million will be spent in responding to COVID-19 in the region. Can you begin by telling us exactly how that money will be spent? Uh, Sure, Rachel. Let me start by putting the $280 million in a little bit of context. As you mentioned, uh, the Foreign Minister and uh, Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Minister Hawke, announced the new strategy, Partnerships for Recovery, at the same time as announcing that we would reprioritise $280 million from our development program. And the new strategy really sets the frame, not just for this $280 million reprioritisation, but in fact for the whole development program. Um, So I think it's worth rehearsing uh, just some of the key pillars of the policy. The policy rests on three pillars, health security, stability and economic recovery, and that's underpinned by a focus on protecting the most vulnerable, in particular women and girls. 
The strategy also has a very clear focus on our region, on the Indo-Pacific, in particular the Pacific and Southeast Asia. And so this shapes, as I say, not only the $280 million, but our broader wholesale reshaping of the development program to, to respond to the challenges of COVID. So to break down the $280 million, there's essentially three components. One is a a package for Pacific and Timor-Leste. The second is a package for Southeast Asia. And and third, uh, Australia's contribution to the global response to the pandemic. Perhaps to give you a flavour of of what that looks like, I can, can give you a few examples. One is that we've supported the Pacific Humanitarian Pathway. So this includes air transport, logistic services uh, to ensure the availability of of critical medical personnel, supplies uh, and also services. And this is, of course, in the context of major disruption to airlines and supply chains. Uh, Another example is the, the work of our enormously professional embassy uh, network throughout the world. Um, They've been working in close touch with partner governments and our Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security to uh, engage with hundreds of requests, actually. Um, And we've provided personal protective equipment, medical supplies, uh, support for laboratories, isolation facilities. And to give you a sense of scale, um, we've delivered over 170,000 individual pieces of medical equipment in this period. We've also, importantly, worked in lockstep with other partners. So, for example, in Suva, in Fiji and in Jakarta, we've been working in lockstep with the World Health Organisation in in their health response, um, hand-washing campaigns, health system strengthening, pandemic communications. Um, but it's not all health and humanitarian. Uh, we know that pandemics and other shocks can exacerbate risks to the most vulnerable. We know social isolation means greater risk of, for example, gender-based violence. And so this has also been a, a focus, including working with organisations that are, have people on the ground like UN Women, the UN Population Fund. And Rachel, if I just make one final point about the $280 million package, it's important to remember that's not the full picture. It reflects the financing that we were able to lift in the last financial year from programs that perhaps weren't able to go ahead because, for example, um, they had travel as a major component. But in fact, our whole development program has pivoted and many of our existing programs have had the ability to respond to COVID with, for example, in in, in Laos, um, the embassy there has been amazing, led by Ambassador Jean-Bernard Carrasco. Um, He and his team have pivoted the flagship education program, which was focused on teacher training, to now focus on supporting the government of Laos uh, to to stand up a TV-based remote learning um, education program. Um, and so that's pretty incredible just to see this pivot in action um, in the, at the same time when our, our diplomats have huge consular load um, and, of course, they're repatriating so many of their staff from the embassy. So 
I think the I really take my hat off to the the efforts across our network of, of so many people that have pivoted the programs. So it is important to note that two hundred eighty million dollars was repurposed, and that this isn't new or additional money. Is it only programs that were unable to go ahead due to coronavirus that were put on hold or cancelled? Uh, there is probably two categories of programs. One is are those that that were unable to go ahead, as you say, because for example they had big travel components. Programs like scholarships or, or volunteers that, that really depend on that people movement or other programs that might have a, uh, a big technical advisory capacity that requires uh, fly in, fly out. Uh, there are some other programs, though, that we looked at carefully to say, are they fit for purpose right at the moment? Is this what our partner governments need and want right at this moment? Do they m- remain relevant? So some of those programs... Um, we, the answer was no and that we're able to put them on hold and redirect the money in the short term. I understand that $100 million allocated for economic support to Pacific nations came from the country budgets already allocated to the Pacific. Were Pacific Island governments consulted on what programs would be cancelled or delayed to reprioritise funds for the new policy? Yeah, good question, Rachel. Uh, I think the title of our new policy, Partnerships for Recovery, um, is emblematic of our approach. It's defined by partnership. And you know, if there were ever days where relationships um, were in the mould of donor-recipient, those days, I mean, they are well gone. Um, so the idea of consulting and engaging in, with our partners is absolutely in our, in our DNA. And, and in some ways... This COVID period has meant even more consultation and connection. Um, For example, our Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, she's been working overtime in this period, connecting with with her counterparts by phone and video conferences. I think I've lost count about how many calls she's done, but it was in the order of 60 different engagements, substantive engagements in the last three months. So she's hearing directly about the challenges and the needs. Um, just just a couple of days ago, in fact, she had a video conference with all of her ASEAN foreign ministerial counterparts where she's announced a package to support their health security, stability and economic recovery. And, and that's been true of our, our approach in the Pacific and, and across um, the network. One example is is uh, how we responded in Timor. Um, our ambassador there and, and the team, Ambassador Peter Roberts, I know he's been working absolutely hand in glove with the Timorese government and was able to respond with a, with a yes when the Timorese government realised that they needed to quickly establish quarantine and isolation facilities when early cases were detected. Um, and when the Timor government um, wanted to increase COVID testing capacity, Ambassador Roberts was able to team up with the Menzies School and, and deliver it. Um, so we've we've been very responsive, and that's been really led by uh, as a, a great um, network of people on the ground who are are working hand in glove. And just one more one more comment on our consultation process. Of course, we've been in this emergency phase and. One thing that the Partnerships for Recovery strategy sets out is that in the next few months, we will be developing country and regional COVID-19 
development response plans and they will be done in lockstep with our partner countries. We'll be listening, we'll be responding so that our pivots can meet their needs. So just to confirm, with the $100 million that was reallocated, Pacific Island governments did have a role in determining which programs would be cancelled or postponed. That's right. That's right. Our, our network on the ground, they, um, as I say, in each country, the ambassadors, the high commissioners, they're working in lockstep with partner governments. Okay. The approach to Asia has been unclear in recent years with the Pacific step up. It's already been announced that our bilateral aid program to Pakistan will be terminated. The new aid strategy also says that from now on, only targeted investments will be made outside of Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Does that mean we're ending aid to Bangladesh, Sri Lanka and Nepal, among other countries? Uh, Rachel, the short answer to that is no. Um, We're continuing our development support to Bangladesh, Sri Lanka and Nepal, and we have been doing so throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, We're working closely, for example, with Bangladesh and and Myanmar uh, through the UNHCR in, in supporting the management of COVID-19 outbreaks in, say, Cox's Bazaar, where we know is, um, you know, a very densely populated spot. Um, We're also working hand-in-hand with the World Food Programme to support surging food insecurity. Also, it's important to understand how our contribution to global endeavours, for example, the Global Vaccine Alliance or or the Global Fund can um, support countries like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and Nepal. So the Global Fund, for example, has opened a a COVID emergency response window and countries like Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, they've all been able to access emergency funding already through the Global Fund window. But, of course, I, I think as your question indicated, we don't want to spread our development resources too thinly and no, there's no doubt that Partnerships for Recovery uh, is very clear that our development efforts will concentrate in Southeast Asia and the Pacific, in particular our near neighbourhood, uh, Pacific, Timor and Indonesia. Uh, this is, of course, right on our doorstep. Uh, we know these places well we feel that we can have the most impact when we work there. So to confirm, support through multilateral donors like the World Food Programme, like Gavi, like other UN agencies, is likely to continue to Bangladesh, Sri Lanka and Nepal, but it's possible we won't have a direct bilateral aid programme in those countries? Rachel, there's no plan to um, phase out our our bilateral programmes to Bangladesh, Sri Lanka and Nepal. So we'll continue to have our bilateral programmes where we can add the most value in that modality, but also um, we need to look at the whole picture where the flows come from, including through our our efforts on the global stage. The policy does reference the Indo-Pacific, but also says aid will be prioritised for Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Can I just clarify what region the department defines as Indo-Pacific? Uh, that's a good a good question. I think the foreign policy white paper had outlined quite a big remit for the for the Indo Pacific, which includes a, a whole range of countries, not least those in, in South and, and West Asia. And of course, those countries continue to be important partners for Australia. Uh, at one one point, I think is important to to remember, and that is that our relationships with with all countries in the Indo Pacific isn't defined by our 
development efforts alone. We have multiple links, be they political, strategic uh, development, trade and economic, people-to-people ties. And all of these links allow us to to have uh, lots of points of connection with countries in the Indo-Pacific. But our development program, of course, is 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 finite, and and we need to ensure that we have a targeted program that that allows our development efforts to have the most impact. Moving on, between 2014 and 2019, the coalition government did cut aid funding to health programs by 260 million dollars, or by 32 percent. Given the situation with COVID now, do you think that's a matter of regret? that we did have a window to invest more in health and we didn't? Look, we were reflecting on the response that we've been able to provide through this pandemic uh, just this week, in fact. And the fact that we were uh, we had the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security in situ, uh, that it's not only a, a DFAT-run organisation, but it's it's emblematic of the whole of government engagement, that centre in particular has stood us in really good stead. Um, It has incredible relationships with some of the top-tier institutions throughout Australia. So when when the pandemic hit, we were in a good position um, with that centre, the expertise that they brought, the expertise that they brought in from whole of government, but also the leverage that they were able to bring uh, through the relationships that, that they had with, as I say, top-tier institutions, Doherty, Menzies, uh, Burnett, just just uh, organisations that, that do so well on the international stage and, and do Australia proud. So, so we have had a focus in the overall health spend on health security and I think that, as I say, has, has um, stood us in good stead. The Partnerships for Recovery strategy does paint a stark picture in terms of the damage caused by COVID-19 globally, both in health and in economic terms. But there is no indication of extra aid or additional funds in response. In your view, why is aid the only type of government spending where new spending has to be offset by cuts elsewhere? Why don't we see new money? Rachel, we operate, of course, within the budget envelope that, that we are given by government. You know, whether that's ODA, official development assistance, or whether that's our departmental funding. And, and it's no doubt it's a, it's a tight fiscal environment and, and our job in Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and across government is, is to deliver you know, the best development program that we can. And, and that's one of the reasons why it's very sharply focused, um, the Partnership for Recovery Strategy. And you know, arguably it's more focused than we ever have been before, more focused geographically, more focused on clear pillars of health security, stability and economic recovery. I think it would also be brave to um, for anyone to suggest that every single one of our development investments across our program before COVID is timeless and fit for purpose post-COVID. So as we talked about earlier, there were some programs that we can't continue at the moment, that we may um, re-energise at a later point. But there there also will be some programs that are not as highly relevant to partner governments as they were before. They don't meet the current priority list in the context of a pandemic. So there is some scope to redeploy these finances and it's exactly 
exactly what we've been trying to do actively and, and responsibly. I think it's also important to be cautious about judging development efforts by quantum alone. Um, you know, clever development programming, in particular working in lockstep with other assets that we bring to bear in our international engagement, can sometimes pack a, a bigger punch. And, and this is actually an important thread through our partnerships for recovery strategy. One interesting example, I think, through the COVID pandemic was just at the cusp of, of the pandemic, both Australia and Indonesia uh, continued their steely focus on, on ratification of the uh, Indonesia-Australia Closer Economic Partnership. They, they pushed that through, even though there were many other things um, seeking government attention at the time. Now, it's a great achievement on both sides and it's our bilateral free trade agreement that's supported by development funds to allow implementation. And, and as we come through the pandemic, I've no doubt that those instruments, you know, a treaty instrument that is, is opening the economy, working in lockstep with our development spend, will bolster economic activity and deliver more flows um, perhaps more than what a development program alone could do. Okay, but would additional funds help to bolster efforts even more or is continuing to repurpose existing money an okay approach? <laughs> well, as I say, we, we work within the budget envelope that, that we have and and work to make our program the best we, we can and, and look to partner with to say other other um, whole of government partners and and other instruments, but funds, as I say, they're not the they're not the only thing that we can do. Um, of course, the Pacific Seasonal Workers Program, the Pacific Labor Scheme, is another great example where remittance flows can sometimes have a greater impact on on families and communities, and, and that's a great example of another program where you've got your development spend working in lockstep with our immigration and employment policies to deliver benefits. So I think that model is the one that we're really trying to move towards, um, not just focusing on what is the total ODA spend, but how do we have all our instruments working together to deliver for uh, our region. We'll come back to the labour mobility point in a moment, but I should explain where these questions are coming from is in 2005, following the Indonesian tsunami, the Howard government announced an additional $1 billion of funding to support the region to recover. COVID-19 has caused more damage than the tsunami did, and yet we have no additional expenditure. Why was additional funding appropriate then and not now? Rachel, fundamentally, it's it's a question for, for government, but I think... I'd make a, a couple of remarks. One is that this crisis is quite quite different in some respects. It's not localised. It's global. It's affecting Australia at the same time as it's affecting our neighbours, you know, at the same time as it's affecting the whole world. And so the pressures are quite different. It's, it's um, no news that Australia is facing its first recession in 29 years. Many of our major trade and investment partners, they're facing economic contraction. Uh, the IMF's projections are very sobering, the global outlook for, for 2020 contraction by, by 4.9%. And we've also got a really uncertain outlook. So, so we're committed to being responsive, 
being reliable, um, continuing to be an all-weather partner for for countries in the region in the same way that we were um, during the tsunami. And we've really been working in lockstep, I know, with the Indonesian government. And, And what our team in Jakarta has been doing um, led by Ambassador Gary Quinlan, is is working lockstep with the Indonesian government with its COVID task force and providing advice on a whole range of issues from health policy to social security to economic stimulus measures. And and I, I, I you know, the partnership there is is extremely strong. Okay, moving on, a lot of our listeners of this program are from the NGO sector, and I know that there have been some fears amongst NGOs about the sustainability of their ANCP funding or other DFAT funding that goes to NGOs. Is there anything specific that you would say to the NGO sector? We had a a big, very widely attended WebEx or teleconference um, with, with many from the NGO sector um, just a couple of weeks ago to give them a briefing on the new policy and, and the priorities. And in many ways, our NGO partners will be at the forefront of our delivery. One of the key questions for us as we're looking across the program is who or which organisations, um, which partners have people on the ground that can continue to deliver? Um, it's a really tough environment, of course, to travel and many of our NGO partners um, have that capability on the ground. And so I think they'll no doubt continue to be to be critical partners for the Australian government uh, as we face the pandemic together. So coming back to labour mobility, you mentioned labour mobility and remittances as important components of supporting the region. The policy says that the government is exploring options to promote travel with the Pacific, given the importance of labour mobility and tourism, do you think the government is showing enough urgency in relation to the Pacific travel bubble? Rachel, in in principle, the Pacific bubble is a good idea. As you've indicated, tourism is a critical economic sector for a number of Pacific Island countries. Australians love travelling there and enjoying the hospitality and the the beautiful settings. Um, but of course, it needs to be sequenced really carefully and cautiously. Uh, the Prime Minister has already uh, spoken publicly about the fact that we are in discussions about a trans-Tasman COVID-safe travel zone between Australia and New Zealand. And this would be a really positive first step. But we have to be realistic about when the, a travel zone, even a trans-Tasman travel zone, could start. And it might be some time before the preconditions are in place to allow that. Uh, We're right, I think, to take a cautious approach. Um, In Australia, we've all been alarmed by by what's happening in Victoria and I guess it it really underlines the the fragility of the situation. And what we don't want to do is open borders too soon to jeopardise success achieved in containing and minimising our domestic spread. So when we get to that point, establish the trans-Tasman bubble, then we will be, uh, I think, looking very carefully as, at the next step in, in terms of expanding that to the broader Pacific Island um, community. And But we really need to be absolutely sure that COVID-19 is suppressed in Australia and New Zealand. We, 
we certainly don't want to be exposing our Pacific Island neighbours to any risks. Um, and they've been very successful, you know, to their credit. Pacific Island countries have been so successful, actually, in keeping infections and, and uh, fatality rates to a minimum and certainly want to ensure that that remains the case. Um, but in the meantime, we are keen to explore other arrangements which do facilitate travel. Uh, we talked just a moment ago about the Pacific Labor Scheme and, and Seasonal Workers Program. Um, these programs can be facilitated with the regular quarantine periods, but they can be facilitated to, to um, support the economic recovery of our neighbourhood. Can you just elaborate on that? Specifically, are there efforts underway to ensure the seasonal workers program can go ahead as planned? Uh, you might you might be aware that uh, we, we had already uh, made some steps through the pandemic to to ensure that workers on the Pacific Labor Scheme and seasonal workers program that were in Australia were were able to stay, and so um, those conversations are starting to happen now uh, up to to as I say, facilitate travel to allow those schemes um, to take sequenced and cautious but, you know, deliberate steps. We know how important that that program is um, and and the fact that it not only can help the economic recovery of um, Pacific Island countries but, of course, Australian small businesses, particularly in the agri agriculture sector, benefit enormously too and, and it will support our own economic recovery. Okay, to finish, last year a new aid policy was announced and consultations and submissions had commenced. This Partnerships for Recovery strategy isn't that new aid policy. When would we expect to see a new aid policy? You're right, Rachel. It was uh, We were well underway uh, uh, in terms of developing a new international development policy um, starting... Uh, last December, uh, stood up a task force in, in DFAT and, and uh, undertook a, a range of consultations and really thank so many stakeholders for their thoughtful and terrific contributions. Um, that actually stood us in very good stead to uh, come up quite quickly with Partnerships for Recovery Strategy and many of the strands that were coming through in the development of the of the policy have now come through in partnerships for recovery. The kind of strands I'm thinking of is uh, that idea of, of our ODA, our Official Development Assistance Program, working in lockstep with our other national assets. Um, those ideas have are still front and centre in, in partnerships for recovery. Um, we have said that this document would the Partnerships for Recovery strategy would stand for a period of around two years. We think that that's a, a, a time period um, that will take us and our region to, to recover from, from COVID-19. And so at the end of that period, we would expect to, to sort of re-look at the strategy and, and um, see where we are at that point in terms of establishing a new policy framework. Okay, so two years until we would expect to see a new aid policy framework. I think that's that's a, a reasonable time period um, and that's what we've said. This would stand for around two years. Okay, thank you, Elizabeth, for your time. Well, thank you, Rachel. Really appreciate it. Nice to be on your podcast. 
was episode 85 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre with Elizabeth Peake. I hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next week.